Well, I was sure this morning not to wear scarlet or purple with any tie or sock arrangement. We're returning to this book after missions conference, and we focus now on Babylon in chapters 16, 17, and 18. That's the common thread running through each of the passages as Taylor just read the text to us. Now, let me say, this being the final month uh, that we'll be in Revelation, I realize this is a hard book. I think in particular for a modern audience, though we are familiar uh, with Netflix series uh, that are apocalyptic and dystopian and, and movies and such that we, that we frequent and, and go to. We're familiar with these stories. But um, being treated to so much doom, it can be discouraging. <laughs> I feel that myself. Uh, it's not just the imagery that makes Revelation difficult, it's the subject matter. I mean, the, the imagery is difficult for any interpreter. But the subject matter, dealing with doom, the, the end of this world so that God can bring about the, 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 the renewal of the world, the new heavens and new earth, that, that end, uh, it, it's tough to, to square with. Uh, we're, and, and besides that, uh, we live in a world that makes us anxious all the time. Uh, we're told to expect ecological doom. We're told to expect epidemic doom. And, and all of that is, affects economies, and, and we hear every week, you know, they're jittery on Wall Street, and, and then the next week it seems like they're not, and then the next week they are, and, and a lot of people despair when they think about the future. And a lot of apocalyptic movies and TV shows that we actually like watching <laughs> uh, reinforce this in telling the stories they do. So most of what you find is apocalyptic on Netflix or Hulu or, or, or wherever you're, uh, you're going to watch uh, those series and movies, uh, they, they tell this very, the, the future is very bleak. You know, humanity has, has uh, descended into zombieism. Uh, the world is a bleak, barren landscape. Technology has turned on us. And because of that, because that's so forefront in our minds when we talk about apocalypse, I need to distinguish for you for just a, a minute here, dystopia from apocalypse. Both of those are, are big words, but we've talked a little bit about, about apocalypse. That's what uh, the unveiling of Revelation, that's what the word means. But, but what's a dystopia? Well, you know what a utopia is. I mean, even you guys know that. Remember Seven Days in Utopia, the golf movie? You love that. Utopia is like, uh, if you love golf, you could play golf all the time with no interruptions, and you would, you would birdie every hole. That would be utopia for a golf player. Well, a dystopia is the opposite of that. The dystopia is everything you don't want. And so when we watch movies and television shows as we do, the future of, of so much of that is dystopian, meaning everything falls apart and nothing will be good again. We've lost civilization. I happened to catch the last uh, 30 minutes last night of Mad Max Fury Road. It was on one of the channels. And I'd actually gone and seen that in, in the theater when it came out. I'd, I'm sorry, I like the Mad Max series. Uh, but we're often told in these stories that the reason all of this has happened, the reason the world is in the chaotic mess it is at the end or it's everybody's gone and just the zombies are left is because the humans were too greedy. The humans were too uncaring. 
And Revelation has the stuff of scary and strange. It does, just like the dystopian movies. But here's the difference. The apocalypse of Revelation shows us God bringing the world to an appointed end, not an accidental one. And that the world beyond this one, a world reconciled to God, is a world where Babylon and all the spiritual forces at work in it are expelled. And that vision of the future, the apocalyptic vision of Revelation, where God brings the world to an appointed end, that vision need only despair those who take the mark of the beast, as Revelation calls it, meaning those with allegiance to Babylon and the forces that promote her. The people who know to direct their curse to God, and they do. You saw it in chapter 16, verse 21. Look again at that. The plague of hail and the people curse God because the plague was so severe. Now, there's two other references in chapter 16. Let me just show them to you. Uh, we didn't read this. Chapter 16, verse 9. Uh, these plagues are, are out of these bowl judgments. You've got the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments in Revelation. And you've got the, the, the bowl judgments here in chapter 16, verse 9. Scorched by fierce heat, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Look at verse 11 in chapter 16. Curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21 says the same thing. This cursing of God is the spirit of Babylon. And so the spirit and practice of Babylon, Babylon is the connector between each chapter that we're looking at, chapter 16, 17, and 18. Each passage Taylor read has Babylon in it. And we're going to talk about Babylon this morning and what that is and why it's significant. The spirit and practice of sin and vandalizing God's design for human flourishing and rising up in opposition to God, all of that fits under a heading biblically of Babylon. Everything that curses God is Babylonian, and God holds all of it accountable. Look again at chapter 18, verse 5, the verse that Taylor concluded with. For her sins, 18, verse 5, this is Babylon, are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, remember back in Revelation chapter 8, You've got the prayers of the saints being offered to God, and it says the prayers of the saints rise up to God. And now in chapter 18, you've got the sins of Babylon heaped up before God. So Revelation 8, prayers of the saints rise up to God. Revelation 18, sins of Babylon heap up to God. In the words of Flannery O'Connor, the great southern novelist, everything that rises must converge. Meaning uh, at some point, God deals with the sins heaping up through the prayers that have been rising up for centuries for God to do something about this. What is Babylon? Biblically considered, Babylon is a label that's given to empire. Human power structures set against God under the influence of spiritual powers that are evil. Now, you remember chapter 11, verse 15. We looked at this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 11, verse 15, when the seventh angel or the seventh trumpet blows from the seventh angel, and there are loud voices in heaven saying, here's what's key, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
Now, if you're used to hearing that in King James, it's kingdoms, plural, but it's actually kingdom, the kingdom of this world, Babylon. Another name for the kingdom of this world, chapter 11, verse 15, is Babylon. Empire at its most secularized, which does not mean it's irreligious. Secularization means you make yourself your own religion. We're the gods we've been waiting for. Even though the project of making ourselves, remaking God in our image, it it does fall apart. And that's what we tell ourselves in our dystopian stories, the stories we create. But we don't heed our own warnings. That's often part of the storyline of those dystopian stories. People tried to warn us, and we still went this way. Biblically considered, Babylon is both a place, an actual location on the map at one time in ancient history, but it's also a spirit. It's, a, it's a, a, an ethos, if you will. There was a land and people called Babylon back in Old Testament history, roughly approximates where Iraq sits on the map today. But there's also an infiltrating ethos of Babylon, of empire, that embeds within powerful cultures, and it was around long before the actual empire of Babylon into which Israel got physically exiled, long before that place exists, you've got the spirit and power of Babylon. In fact, really, biblically, Babylon began at Babel, and not just because the two things sound alike, but because of what happened at Babel. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, remember the Tower of Babel? You've heard about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel uh, was the first global project in service to human autonomy. Autonomy means being a law to yourself. And autonomy is what Babylon represents. So again, in Revelation, we're told Jesus has already won. That's what Revelation gives us. And Revelation tells us the church is going to win because of Jesus' victory. The kingdom of this world, chapter 11, verse 15, becomes the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. Jesus has overcome Babylon by what he did on the cross. And he will overcome Babylon by eventually putting it in hell. And we'll look at that next time when we get into chapter 19. Babylon has to go. Because while the spirit of Babylon has been around since Babel in your Old Testament, since Sodom in your Old Testament, since Egypt in your Old Testament. In fact, if we, if we took time to read the first part of chapter 16, Taylor picked it up at verse 17. But if we looked at the first 16 verses, the six of seven bold judgments poured out, they look remarkably like the plagues visited upon ancient Egypt. And again, that's one of the things that's helpful about Revelation is that almost every image in Revelation corresponds to something in the Old Testament prophets or Old Testament history. And so when you look at Egypt in ancient times as a superpower, it was, it was a Babylon of its day. You look at Rome in the New Testament period, it is a Babylon of its time, and so on. The spirit of Babylon animates powerful cultures of the world through history to now, and it's got to go. It cannot coexist with the newness that Jesus is bringing as he's reconciling the world to himself. This is what Revelation tells us. Babylon will go, not into some gray dystopian void but into the judgment of God, which will be specific and pointed, 
For all Babylon has been heaping up for ages, God answers that in judgment. There comes a point where God says, enough. At his first coming, Jesus tolerated Babylon. At his second coming, he removes it into hell. Why? Because Babylon is portrayed here in these three chapters of Revelation. If you want to harness everything we've got here, Babylon is an economic brothel. The wealthy and powerful frequent and protect through injustices of all kinds. And also the poor and powerless in their ways. We'll come to that momentarily. Babylon is an economic brothel. The wealthy and powerful frequent and protect through injustices of all kinds. But also the poor and the powerless in their ways. They also participate in it. Remember uh, 17, uh, verse 2, she sits on the many waters. The kings of the earth have committed sexual morality, and with the wine of whose sexual morality, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. It's, it's everybody. It's not just the powerful and the lofty, the power brokers and the kingmakers. It, it's, it's the down and out, too. They, they have a participation in Babylon that they also uh, are held accountable for. Jesus expels this from his new creation coming. Babylon gets God's judgment because in its ethos, its effects, they have to be removed from the newness that Jesus brings at his return. But now, reading this as Westerners, most of us in this room are descendants of European cultural dominance. Don't we find these depictions of Babylon hit a little close to home? I think they do. From a biblical vantage point, Babylon is home for us in that we live in the most influential, the most powerful, the most secularizing culture the world has ever known. Do you realize that more <clears throat> religions have been created from the United States of America than you find in, in competing countries around the world? Now, God redeems people out of Babylon. He's been doing it for eons. And God turns nations. But we're dealing here in Babylon with something along the lines that the old Puritan John Owen said when he spoke to how grace changes the nature of a person, but nothing changes the nature of sin. John Owen said that. Grace changes the nature of man. He said, changeth. Old times. Grace changeth the nature of man, but nothing changeth the nature of sin. Nothing changes the nature of Babylon. Babylon is always prostituted empire. Chapter 17, verse 5. On her forehead written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Her prostitution is economic. If you take everything in these chapters and put it together, it's a, it's a picture of, of economic flourishing and indulgence, but that's, that's, that's propped up on injustice. Her prostitution is economic. Her abominations, chapter 17, verse 5, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, her abominations are humanitarian. Why do you think over and over and over again in the scriptures, 
Both Israel and the church are called to do justly. It is because Babylon will not. The people of God are the ones being counted on to love mercy, do justly, walk humbly. And where do we do this? From within Babylon. Wherever Babylon is, wherever its ethos, its spirit reveals itself in powerful cultures. We seek the welfare of the Babylonian city. Remember that charge given? It's, it's familiar. It's one of the things people realize uh, about Jeremiah, recognize immediately in Jeremiah. Uh, it's, it's back in Jeremiah chapter 29. Israel has gone into exile. And Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, going into the physical, actual Babylon of ancient times, Nebuchadnezzar and, and where Daniel ended up and all of that. And, and God says to the people through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Babylon is an economic brothel the wealthy and powerful frequent and protect through injustices of all kinds, but also the poor and the powerless in their ways. We'll come to that. And yet the people of God are there, sent in there by God, praying for Babylon, raising families in Babylon, befriending Babylonians, seeking the welfare of Babylon. This place that's utterly opposed to God at, at heart. In fact, later in Jeremiah, I read to you from Jeremiah 29. If you go to Jeremiah 51, you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you about it. Jeremiah 51, 9, God says, we would have healed Babylon. And in the intervening place of Jeremiah between chapter 29 and chapter 51, God's going to deal with Babylon for what they've done to Israel and what they have continued to do to uh, his creation, the spirit of Babylon. We would have healed Babylon, he says in Jeremiah 51, but she would not be healed. In other words, she would not submit to God's design for human flourishing. She has her own idea. And her own idea, if you go back to Revelation, Revelation 17, verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It's, it's almost like addiction. Um, another way of saying it, that she, she's addicted to opposing God. There, there's, 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 no, she, there, there's, no, there's no governor she puts on herself. And if the people of God stand in her way, she consumes them. Still, we seek Babylon's welfare, though she does not seek ours. Now, I want to take what we've got here and in these three chapters and, and put them under two headings as, as I usually do. The first is that Babylon is a prostituted economy. Let's talk about that. What does that mean? Babylon is a prostituted economy. And second, Babylon is personal autonomy. Babylon is a prostituted economy and Babylon is personal autonomy. First, I've been calling it an economic brothel. This prostituted economy. Now, let me qualify here, and this is important. Well, not that, I mean, I think everything I'm saying is important, but at least this is important. Next, follow, follow along. The distortion of something should not cause us to think the thing itself is evil. 
So when I say uh, an economic brothel, uh, commerce, which is what economies create and sustain, commerce is part of the good design of God for human flourishing. And later on, we're coming to it in a couple of weeks, we will look into the new Jerusalem, this city that will descend, that Babylon does not want coming down on its head, this place of justice, but this place also where uh, when we look into new Jerusalem, we see contained within it expressions of commerce, lo and behold, but stripped of, of everything that sin embeds uh, within it. The Tower of Babel, I mentioned that uh, just a few moments ago, found back in Genesis chapter 11. The human industry that builds towers is not itself evil. The construction and commerce it involves, products and supplies and architecture and office space and, and service industries that build it and base within it, all that serves the common good because that's what God's design for commerce was and is. The good design of God is that commerce serves the common good. So economy is not a necessary evil. Don't say about economies, they're a necessary evil. An economy is a necessary good that can be turned evil, prostituted to power, and that is the spirit of Babylon. And that even this, the, the, the emphasis on sexual immorality that you, you get here uh, has, this, has this economic aspect to it. Look, we didn't look at this, but look down in chapter 18 at verse 11. Chapter 18, verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Chapter 18 is beginning to, to, to say that Babylon is, is going to be destroyed, and chapter 19 shows it. But in chapter 18, verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth. Remember the purple and the scarlet. All kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, verse 13, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human soul. I mean, the list was looking pretty good until we got to the trafficking at the end. But what's the point of the whole list? The point of the whole list is Babylon's appetite is insatiable. That's the picture we're being given. Now, I'm glad Andrew Scott, last weekend, our missions conference speaker, emphasizes, go therefore and take your business with you, your job with you, subtitle of his excellent book. And our own David Frazier talked about this uh, last Sunday night, and it was excellent. I'd love to hear David do a, a longer presentation on this line. I, I'm glad for the recovered emphasis on the deep connection between God's business in the world and human commerce, because I've done some work in the faith work arena, cultural renewal uh, work, and, and I know the church has regrettably underserved people in business in that we've, we've given you in business the idea that, you know, if you really wanted to glorify God with your life, you should have gone into vocational ministry. You should have gone to, to, to Bible college and to, and to seminary, not business school. And I, I, I love seminary. I, I am an adjunct professor in one. I've, I'm the product of two. I remember when I got my doctorate uh, 10 years ago now, our, our youngest daughter was seven, 
and we were down at Samford in Birmingham, uh, Beeson Divinity School there, and, and uh, you go through all the pomp and ceremony of, of getting your, your degree, and, and my little girl at, at, at that time, seven, uh, said to me, Daddy, are you now going to fix sick, sick people? And I said, no, honey, the, the, the doctor your daddy has, is a, I'm a worthless doctor. There's nothing about that that uh, can do anything for anybody. So seminary's great, but if it glorifies God to bring about maximum human flourishing, if that's a bottom line biblical consideration, and I can make that case biblically, that it glorifies God to bring about maximum human flourishing, whether people are redeemed or not, then business, so many kinds of business ventures do that. So I, I, I'm just trying to be very careful with us here that when, because sometimes we, we enter into this sort of Sunday morning Pharisee mode. Oh yes, you know, the Babylonians, the, the, the terrible business people, you know. Come on. Uh, the idea that commerce is not a thing good in itself, <laughs> whereas ministry is, is a false distinction. In fact, if you go back and look at the prophets, the way they talk about Babylon, the place and the spirit, is that the, the spirit of, of Babylon, when you look at the prophets, it infects commerce and ministry. So verse 4 in chapter 18 here. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. What, what are the Babylonian sins? Injustices of all kinds. Indulgences of all kinds. That's the Babylonian sins. Injustices of all kinds. Indulgences of all kinds. Grasping at power not to serve but to be served. Babylon's sins can easily become ours. That's what he's saying in chapter 18 verse 4 here. And this takes us now to our second consideration of two and we're done. Babylon is personal autonomy. Autonomy, again, means a law to yourself. Even if you're not wealthy or powerful, you can still be complicit in Babylonian sins. Maybe not to the scope or scale. You might not be able to do the damage that the power brokers and the kingmakers do, but nonetheless. And this is why I've been saying, each time I've said Babylon is an economic brothel, the wealthy and powerful frequent and protect through injustices of all kinds, I've been careful to add to that, but also the poor and powerless in their ways. There's a dual call on the church when it comes to Babylon. The dual call is on the one hand, seek the welfare of the Babylonian city where you are Exiled. I mean, what does First Peter call us? Exiles, strangers on the earth. So, so this idea of an exile, uh, it, in some ways it feels disingenuous for Westerners to use it because we have all these religious freedoms. But from a biblical vantage point, we're exiles and strangers on the earth. We belong to another kingdom. And so we're to seek the welfare of the place of our exile. We're to seek the welfare of Memphis. We're, about, we're, we're to be about what's good for this city and to, and to promote its flourishing and the common good and to think of that and to, and, and to put our resources and our time and, and, and our homes uh, in that. So there is the dual call of the church to seek the welfare of Babylon through everyday work and commerce and through that to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And then there's also dual call, seek the welfare of Babylon and also come out from her. See that in chapter 18, verse 4. 
And we often talk about this as sort of an in but not of dynamic, a familiar way we, we put it. But God is going to topple the prostituted economy of Babylon. By economy, I don't just mean money. I mean the way power works, power structures, the way uh, that, that, that people uh, use power and use the finance that often goes with that, uh, all of that is, is interrelated. So he's going to topple the prostituted economy, but he's also going to judge the personal autonomy that Babylonian messages tell us in thousands of ways we can get in on. We can get a piece of this if we want to. Regardless of your income, regardless of where you're from. And so if I, if I only said to this point, Babylon is an economic brothel, the wealthy and powerful frequent and protect through injustices of all kinds, well, we'd think, well, that's on them. You know, you're talking about this person in power and this government over here and, and this corporation. But I, I'm not influential. I'm just little me. Babylon provides little you and little me thousands of entry points. Every one of us, even the poor and put upon. And what it means to be poor and put upon biblically, poverty biblically, is that somebody can take advantage of you and you can't really do anything about it. You don't have any recourse. And so God then is the advocate for those who are in that position. Except... People in that position can opt to buy into the central lie of personal autonomy, even if they don't have a lot of purchase power. Maybe you remember two months ago, I was uh, preaching through Mark 12, finishing it up two months ago, and uh, I preached a message from Mark 12 entitled Dignity. And I quoted in that message from a book by the same title by um, uh, an independent photojournalist named Chris Arnotti who visited a lot of economically depressed places in America. Uh, he's been doing that for the last five, six years. He dubs it back row America, the people that feel forgotten, uh, the people who uh, politically are, are sort of characterized by resentment and, and a sense of nobody thinks about us, nobody understands what we're going through. His first chapter is entitled, If You Want to Understand the Country, Visit McDonald's. He talks about how McDonald's is the place that will take anybody. And he would go to McDonald's in these places and talk with whomever would talk with him and listen to the stories of marginalized people, take pictures of them if they were willing for him to do that, their neighborhoods, their towns. The common theme he found among those he talked to was felt humiliation. The country has forgotten them. The power structures don't work for them. They're desperate for anybody who speaks their language, they'll, they'll, they'll get behind them. And so uh, he wants to dignify them. And these are people in the, in the back alleys and, and living in, in uh, very difficult situations. And that's good and needed. They need to be dignified because they're image bearers. But it doesn't mean that they are immune from giving themselves to Babylon from participating in Babylon, from seeking personal autonomy. You can turn corrupt and illicit due to power, due to, uh, because you get money and influence, but you can also turn corrupt and illicit because you despair of ever having money or power. And if that's where you put your hope, 
money and power, and so many people around us do, American culture from top to bottom is thoroughly Babylonian. You meet it coming and you meet it going. You see it in the halls of power down into the alleys of despair, which tells us what? (laughs) It tells us there is no one who doesn't need a Savior because there is no one who has not chosen autonomy. All of us have. We've all wanted to be our own God. We've all wanted to do our own thing, regardless whether the one true God wants us to or not. But you know what the good word to that is? This hasn't put us beyond the reach and the care and the cure of the one true God. He will have us, though we would not have him. What is the gospel? While we were yet sinners, while we were holding the spray can on which we vandalize God's shalom, a word that means his design for human flourishing, while we were yet sinners, not looking for the answer, all you contributed to your salvation is you got lost. And he went looking and he found us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, paid the penalty when we were apathetic and didn't care. And so the table that we turn to now, it's a proclamation of the reality of the goodness of God to people who have prostituted themselves to the spirit of the times, to people who grasp at personal autonomy. God left none of us to our Babylonian ways, but he cut in on us. He he told us the truth about ourselves, which stings. But he also applied his grace and mercy, which, smooth, which soothes. And, and more than that, it sanctifies, which is a word that communicates desire for Christ. The Lord wants to redeem. I would have healed even Babylon, he says to Jeremiah. I love the old Michael Card song. As we go to communion, I want you to think about these words. Come to the table. He's prepared for you. The bread of forgiveness, the wine of release. Come to the table and sit down beside him, the Savior who wants you to join in the feast. Come to the table and see in his eyes the love that the Father has spoken and know you are welcome, whatever your crime, for every commandment you've broken. For he's come to love you and not to condemn and he offers a pardon of peace. If you come to the table, you'll feel in your heart the greatest forgiveness, the greatest release. You come to the table because you've first gone to the cross. Where everything that stands between you and God is covered and removed, paid for in full. His body given for us, his blood poured out for us. The greatest forgiveness, the greatest release. Men who are going to serve with me this morning, would you stand and let's distribute the elements.